Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello, everyone. Thank you for keeping me company again here on my podcast and my YouTube channel. Today, we're going to talk about happiness again. As you remember, a few episodes ago, that's what we talked about. But the guest today has a very different view from the last guest that, that, that I had on, on happiness and how to reframe your life. Today, we're going to talk to Sri Kumar Rao. We're going to call him Dr. Rao, just for simple, <laughs> to keep it simple. But I have to say, Dr. Rao, I'm so happy you're here with us. I came across Dr. Rao when I was searching about happiness, because as you know, you're my audience, my dear listeners. I'm always searching for people who have a message of hope. And that's what he's going to bring into today, into this conversation. I'm so glad he's here because even for me, Dr. Rao, some of the things that we're going to talk about are a mental model, how to reframe your life, how to look at the way you view life and change your perspective on, on how you deal with that and how you see your, your relationships too, because that's what it always impacts directly. I've, I've even now, I'm already doing that myself. I'm applying some of your concepts. They're beautiful. It's a beautiful message. So without further ado, let's start. Thank you so much for saying yes to my audience. My pleasure entirely, Paula. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yes, and, and before I ask you the first question, we were previously being introduced to each other and he was telling me how he's had a few cases, if you could talk about that, Dr. Rao, of people who actually were thinking about attempting suicide, but they came across either his message, one of, I saw the TED talk too, and some of his videos online, the books he writes, and they actually changed their minds. Can you tell us about that? Oh, certainly. These are not things that I know firsthand, but they were narrated to me by people who knew. And one person, for example, who was the CEO of a company, and he wanted to have me talk, and I asked him, how do you know about uh, me? And he said, well, I learned about it from my chief marketing officer. And he was passing through a bad patch in his life, and uh, he had decided to end it all. And he was passing mm -hmm. a bookstore and somehow he picked up your book and he started reading it. And uh, mm -hmm. that was the beginning of his journey to put himself back together again. Wow. And he never committed suicide. Then there've been a couple of people who listened to my TED talk apparently, and they were also on the verge of committing suicide. Or when I say on the verge, I mean, let's do it now. And they mm -hmm. refrained after uh, listening to my TED talk. And I understand that because one of the things that really touched me, Dr. Rao, was some people, sometimes for some of these episodes, it takes me weeks to decide whether or not I should invite someone. I read their books, I listen to their talks, I watch the video. Sometimes I go, no, I don't think that it applies. But yours, after just a few minutes, you just pass on this uh, message of hope, of serenity. 
any it's just so authentic you are one of those rare people that you look at and you go wow he means it that's how he lives his life and it really didn't take long i didn't have to watch 10 videos like i usually do or read your books because i just wanted you to bring this message to us so thank you again and let's start with one of your concepts that i think applies to all of us mental chatter as you say, it's an unwelcome guest and it helps us. That's one of the things that helps us create our reality, which sometimes is not really the reality, but it's what we believe in. So what is mental chatter and how does that affect our lives? Paula, mental chatter is an internal monologue that we have going on in our head all the time. We've always had it. It begins when you get up in the morning, is with you throughout the day, is with you right now, is with you when you go to bed. And sometimes it speaks so loudly that you can't go to sleep. You know, mm -hmm. the kind of thing that says, do I have to get up? I want to sleep some more. Let me hit the snooze button. Oh gosh, there's so much work to do. I'm never going to get it all. It's always there incessantly. And most, it's been so much a part of our life that we don't even recognize we have it. It's part of the background now. It's like an unwelcome relative who's shown up in your house and you can't throw him out. So what do you do? You suppress it, you ignore it, you work around it, you try to do the best you can with your mental chatter. That's a big mistake because our mental chatter creates our life. We think we live in a real world, we don't. We live in a construct. And we made that construct with our mental chatter and our mental models. It, all of us are living in the matrix, Paula. Only this is not a matrix created by an alien civilization, but our own creation. Mm -hmm. We construct the world with our mental chatter, and then we experience the world as we have constructed it. Mm -hmm. And where does it come from? Where does the chatter come from? Oh, that is a very profound question. And the short answer is the mind generates the chatter. The mind is always looking out. One of the most important teachings of the Buddha was the parable of the second arrow. Have you heard about that? No. Okay. So the Buddha asked Ananda, his disciple, Ananda, if an arrow were to hit you in the arm, would it not be very painful? And then the knot says, yes, Lord, it would be very painful. And if a second arrow would hit you exactly where the first arrow hit you, would it not be even more painful? Ananda nod, yes, Lord, it would be even more painful. Then the Buddha, why then do you shoot the second arrow? Now that needs a little elaboration. So let me tell you a story. There was a mother, he was a good mother, and her son grew up and he turned 16. He got his provincial driver's license. And one day he comes up to his mom and says, hey, mom, I'm getting together with a group of friends. I need to take the car. And the mom says, no, you just got your provisional license. You can't take the car. He says, no, no, I have to take the car. Where do you have to go? I'll drop you. No, no, mom, you don't understand. I'm getting together with my friends. It's very important that I have the car. It's very important that you not be there. So the mom says, okay, if I'm not there, I'm not there. You, there's Uber, there's Lyft. No, no, mom, you don't understand. I have to have the car. Don't you understand? I have to have the car. 
And the mom says, nobody begs and pleads and wheedles. And you know how kids are. So bit by bit, the mother gives in and she takes promises. You're not going to drink. No, no, I'm not going to drink. You're going to come back at nine o'clock. Yeah, I'm going to come back at nine o'clock and you'll call. Yes, I'll call. So she reluctantly, she gives him the car keys. And of course, once she gives him the car keys, he forgets all the promises, doesn't call, uh, gets drinks too many beers, has a serious accident on the way back and is operated on in the hospital. And his mother is there in the hospital in the operating, uh, next to the operating room and when he's wheeled to the recovery room, she rushes back home to have a quick shower so she can go back to the hospital. And then a friend calls. And the friend says, what kind of a mother are you? How could you possibly have let him have the car you're not a mother you're a murderer wow. now you're shocked that a friend would say something like that right at a time like this but you'd probably be less shocked if i said it wasn't what her friend said it's what she told herself because she believed it right it was probably that something that she was is, telling herself already that is the second arrow and the important thing about the second arrow, Paula, is the second arrow is always delivered by means of mental chatter. Mm. No matter what problem you're facing, your mental chatter about that problem makes it at least one and probably several orders of magnitude greater. Yeah, and this All is of my so coaching important. Clients, if I could yeah. get them to stop at the second arrow, they'd be way ahead of the game. Yeah. Most of the time, they're in their fifth, sixth, and 25th arrows. Mm. Yeah, because it becomes a loop, right? And we will talk about how to change all of that. We'll, we'll go into two yeah. more. We'll go into two more concepts of yours that come from your talks, and then we'll, we'll talk about how to flip that and how to change sure. that. But when you talk about mental chatter, Dr. Rao, I think about in terms of who the people who are listening right now, if they are suicidal, the mental chatter might be something like, I'm not good enough. I am never going to get out of this situation. There's no way out. And that's why suicide becomes an option. And that's also for those who are grieving, is what did I do wrong? And it's the mother. Many, many times it's the parents who are blamed for the loss they had and they blame themselves. I mean, how could I not have seen it? Did I do enough? Was, was I a good parent? Was I good enough? So I can see this mental chatter as a loop in their heads over and over Completely. again. It's not just a loop, Paula. It's a self-reinforcing loop. The more you think mm -hmm. about it, the deeper it becomes and the more you think about it. Yeah, so it, it becomes, and as you said, it shapes your reality, right? Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about the second concept. It's mental models. And one of the things you say about them is that we are not aware of them. So can you bring awareness what mental models are? Sure. A mental model, Paula, is a notion you have that this is the way the world works. You have dozens of models. You have hundreds of models. You've got a model for everything. You've got a model for how do I select guests to come on my podcast? You've got a model for how do I find a man to marry? You've got a model for how do I find a job? How do I get ahead in the job that I find? Dozens of models. These models may be in conflict with each other and you may or may not be aware of them. The problem is not that we have mental models. The problem is that we're not aware that we have mental models. We think this is the way the world works. And we're so convinced that this is the way the world works 
that we gather a lot of evidence, quote unquote, that this in fact is the way the world works. And very soon we build a silo around ourselves that's so thick that uh, we can't break out of it. Look at the world right now, the amount of divisiveness there is. And it's all based on a model. That person supports that party and that candidate. He must be evil. He must, the devil has entered into his soul. I don't want anything to do with that person. That's mm -hmm. a model. And the more you think like that, the more you notice the person's activities, proclivities, and you say, see, I knew that. He is the devil. And that happens on both sides. Yeah, just look at what happened with the masks, right? Who are the people who don't wear masks? Who are the people who now are not, are not willing to be vaccinated? These are all mental models. These are all mental models. Mm -hmm. The problem, as I said, is not that we have mental models. The problem is we don't recognize we have mental models. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so-and-so is, uh, a, belongs to party A, he must be evil. So automatically, you look for things, signs that that person is evil. And of course, you'll find them. Yeah, if you look you for signs that he's a great right? guy, you'll find that too. But when you're doing that, you don't recognize it as a model. You think, see, I told you, this is the way it is. Yeah, and that yeah. is how we get into silos. And that is why we have so much divisiveness and rancor and... Uh, uh, all of the uh, conflict that we have. And this is worldwide. Yeah, I know. In my country, it's the same. We have the same situation as in here, a country that is divided into you're good, you're bad, I'm good. Right? Yeah, and it's, it's a really global sad to see. Paula, yeah, it is. Global. It is. And, and I don't see it getting any better. And it, what comes to me is the idea of flexibility. Because you even surround yourself with people who believe, have the same belief system. Again, they reinforce what you believe in and you are unable to broaden a little bit your vision to see it's not just that, right? Correct. The important thing, as I said, is to recognize that it is a mental model. Because if you recognize that this is not reality, it's just a model, then you ask yourself, is this model serving me well? Mm -hmm. And if you think that the model is not serving you well, you can make changes in it. But if it's reality, hey, there's nothing you can do about it. This is reality. Where do we draw the line, Dr. Rao? You're talking about this and I'm, and I'm thinking about beliefs, but I'm also thinking about values. Because sometimes, the ment many times, the mental model is related to your values. Mm -hmm. And values are kind of rigid, right? And sometimes they should be. So Sometimes. where do you draw the line between, okay, I need to be more flexible and open my mind, but if it's totally against my values, I mean, where do I draw the line in terms of being this aware of my mental models? This is a very tough question, Paula. And this is such a nuanced question that we will not be able to get into the bottom of this in our interview. Mm -hmm. Because values are also contextual. Mm -hmm. I am going to tell the truth. That is a value. I, you know, I, I'm a truth teller. But then let's assume you're living in Nazi Germany and a person who's being chased by the Nazi a Jew comes to your thing and says, please help me. And you say, okay, get under the sofa there. And immediately afterwards, the troops come in and say, did a Jew come in here? And you say, no. And they go away. And you lied. 
And you just violated your values. Yeah. That's why I say, you know, there is in context. Yeah. So you have your values, you stick to your values, but you also judge them in the situation that you are in. And, and also the situation, and of course, as a therapist, I see this, I, I treat people, uh, I, for a while, I, I had as clients, sex offenders, and many, many times, my friends would look at me, even my friends' therapists would look at me, why on earth would you do that, right? So I always had two answers. One was, because that's the best way to protect victims, because more than 80% of, of those who, who are sex offenders don't reoffend if they go through treatment. So that's a very good, good way of pro protecting society. But the second, second, second answer was because I try to look at them as human beings and I'm curious about what led them there. There's always a story. There's always yeah. a story. There's always a story. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay, let's go number three. The last one that I, I want to talk about today. Well, not the last, last concept that I, I heard you talk about. We still have a long road, but the me-centered universe. This is all of us. It's human to be centered, to be self-centered. It's a matter of self-protection. It's, it's how we protect ourselves, how we make ourselves safe to always think of ourselves first. Even those who say, no, I'm very altruistic. I think about others first. No, it's, it's not even human to think of others first, right? We always look at ourselves first and that's the lenses that we, we apply to everything. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We live in a me-centered universe when by a me-centered universe, what we're always doing is behaving as if the earth revolves around us. And we view all things, all events from the lens of what is the impact on me. Our partner gets a great job offer. And your first thought is, how is this going to affect our relationship? Your boss leaves the company and your first thought is, Who's the new person going to be? And what's my relationship going to be with that person? Or possibly, am I going to get promoted? Or is it that turkey next to me? No matter what happens, we bring it down to what's the impact on me. Even when we're altruistic. Earthquake in Mexico, many people died. Oh, let me call up the uh, and make a contribution to the aid effort. And very quickly after that, you say, how dare they put me on hold for so long no matter I'm what trying happens, to help right we're always thinking in terms of what's the impact on me mm -hmm. and i want to push back against the common notion of altruistic oh you know he's so altruistic he gave so much money he volunteers in the soup kitchen no you're not really being altruistic you just have a model of the world in which you are a helpful individual and you're living up to that model because it feels good for you. And that is why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. That is such a long conversation, isn't it? I know, we won't go, we won't go there in, very, in a lot of details, but it's a great conversation to have. It's yeah. a very, very great conversation. And philanthropy, much of what we call philanthropy, is actually a enhanced ego gratification. 
I have all the money that I can need. So it gives me more pleasure to have a building with my name on it than $500 million. Yeah. So there is a, even in that, there is a lot of me-centeredness floating around. Yeah. In, in my audience, when we talk about the me-centered universe, uh, those who are grieving, and we know how it works. I mean, grief takes, it erases everything else. It takes over your life. And it's all about your pain and your loss. And, and that's natural. We're not saying that's wrong, of course. That's natural. It's a natural thing. That's what we do as humans. We avoid pain and we don't know how to deal with it. Same thing with those who have suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts or attempted before. Same thing, they are in pain, they're going through crisis and they are so much into themselves. That's in a way, that's what depression is, right? Absolutely. In fact, you took it right out of my mouth. We say, oh, my best friend died, my mother died, I'm grieving for them. No, you're not grieving for them. You're grieving for yourself. Mm -hmm. grieving for I should have done that I could have done that like you know I would have there what is life going to be like without the, you're not never grieving for them you're always grieving for yourself mm -hmm. for your loss right oh, the hole that that leaves yes. behind and, and and with my audience many times for the many times you feel guilty so for the guilt that you feel even if it makes sense or not, that's another question. But guilt for the relationship you never had, then you don't have time to mend. That is absolutely correct. And mm. depression, Paula, first, I'm not a psychiatrist or a medical person in any way. So I'm not making a professional judgment, but I'm making a very informed statement based on many years of doing what I do. Depression is nothing but mental chatter, which has run amok for so long that the person can no longer handle it. Yeah, yeah. And it becomes a mental model, right? It becomes, it becomes very- It becomes the lenses through which you see the world. You see the world. Yeah. It makes sense. And you say that one of the, at least for this uh, me-centered universe, one of the answers is to be other-centered, uh, an other-centered person. So how, do, how does one do that? When you are me-centered, uh, Paula, you're always going to live a mediocre existence. That's just the way it is. In my courses and for my coaching clients, I have an exercise that I call the other-centered universe exercise. Now, have you ever been in a situation where something happened? Uh, let's say you were waiting in a line and the person next to you, it was a long line and not moving, but the person next to you was very jovial and he told jokes and he talked to you and you felt so good about it that you forgot it was a long line and you just had a ball. Or maybe you went to a department store to buy, buy some clothes and the salesperson told you, oh, Paula, you look really pretty in this dress, it becomes you. And you sense that he wasn't trying to sell that to you. He was just being sincere. But he had an interaction like that that made you feel good. Can you remember that? Yeah, I, I do. Everybody can. Yeah. So the exercise is you're going to go out and you're going to make someone's day. And you have to do that every day for you know, the duration of the exercise, which is generally a week or a month. Mm 
you go out and make somebody's day. And when you're making somebody's day, you're only doing it for the other person and not at all for you. So if you say, I did so much for him and he didn't even say thank you, you've just blown the spirit of the exercise. Because okay. again, it's about you. It's about the recognition you of your actions. Thank you. you. It's your ego that's hurt. It's yeah. you there. So I'll tell you a story. There was a, a senior entertainment ex executive who I was teaching at London Business School, and there was a senior entertainment e uh, executive who was commuting from Brussels to London just to take my course. And he was supposed to do the other-centered universe exercise, and he didn't do anything. And all of a sudden on the train, he realized, hey, I didn't do the other center. Universe. I'm going to do 10 times today. <laughs> so basically, if you're taking uh, coming from Brussels to London, you take the channel and he got off at the station, which is St. Pancras. And there were a group of students who had come from somewhere and uh, they were milling around and they listened to the conversation. They wanted to go somewhere. They wanted to go to Bath, I think. I'm not sure. But trains are expensive in England and they didn't know if they had enough money. So they were scrounging around, turning out their pockets and trying to see whether or not uh, they had enough. And on a sudden impulse, he counted how many there were and he went to the ticket counter and he bought tickets for all of them. Wow. And he told the clerk, hey, listen, these people are going to come to buy tickets. And uh, if, when, when they do, give them the tickets and tell them it's paid for. And if it turns out that they're going to leave without coming, call them and tell them that, you know, uh, the here are the tickets for you. And he went to the uh, exit and, you know, just stood around watching. So the students looked around and then finally decided, okay, we have enough money. And they, one of them went to buy the tickets and the clerk gave them the tickets and told them what happened. And uh, his face suddenly lit up. He couldn't believe it. Then he called the, all the others excited. Hey, come here, come here. You know, we got the tickets and everybody was puzzled. And then they laughed. And there was such, you know, Joy. happiness yeah. and enjoyment. And then he came to my class and he told the story. And he said, you know, Professor Rao, I haven't felt this good in years. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're truly other-centered, you find that there is a joy that comes in you. And of course, people are very quick to pick that up because I teach bright MBA students and say, Professor Rao, let me get this straight. You say that we become very joyous when we're other-centered. Yes. So it's really all about us, isn't it? Again, it comes back to us, right? <laughs> and the short answer is that's the beginning, the baby step. You begin by you know, being other centered and you feel good. But after you do it long, long enough, you're no, you become a different person. And then you're no longer doing it because you want to feel good. You're doing it because that is the outward manifestation of the kind of person you have become. Wow. And that is when you will get the greatest benefit from this exercise. Yeah. When you're not being other centered, quote unquote, because you're going to feel good, but because you've become the kind of person for whom that way of acting and behaving is mm -hmm. the norm. It becomes instinctive, doesn't it? It becomes and the norm. This is who. Yeah. And then we create a new cycle, right? But, uh, but it's a positive one because you help yeah. someone, you feel good. And then when you feel good, you're kinder, you're more generous. And then it just creates this cycle well, and it creates example. a new mental model. Right. The many examples that we can look at for a mother, for example, her child is crying and, you know, she is able to get the child to eat. The child uh, eats enough and sleeps and the mother feels as though she's eaten and she is happy. That 
is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Do you have a friend or a loved one who struggles with suicidal thoughts, ideation, or even previous attempts? If you do, I have some information for you. I know that the situation is scary, and many times we want to do the best we can to help, but we don't know how. Over the course of my 15 years working in this field, I have learned how to address these issues, and that's what I want to share with you. And for that, I have just created an online course that will guide you step by step on how to sit down and have this difficult conversation. The course is called How to Help Suicidal People, and I purposely took a very straightforward approach so that when you finish, you will feel prepared to take action in a safe, non-judgmental and compassionate way. You will learn about the mental state of a suicidal person, how it impacts the way they view their personal crisis, how to bring hope into the conversation, how to prepare yourself to listen to them, especially when they talk about their emotional pain, how to create a safety plan, how to assess their risk level, and much, much more. The course comes in six modules and it's all videos with very simple language and reading materials for quick reference. If you think that this course is for you, click on the link on my notes or go to my website understandsuicide.com and click on the course tab. There you can also watch a free sample and have more information about the course. Thank you. So mental chatter, mental model, and me-centered universe. That's a recipe for disaster and for unhappiness. So let's go into the second part of our interview and let's give them answers on how to change all of that. You already gave a a very good example of of the answer to that, but let's talk about change because my audience many times, they are so stuck in this mental model and this self-talk negative all the time, telling them that they're they're guilty for, for the loss that they're experiencing or the crisis they're going through. So there are so many, I could spend hours here talking Talking about this mental chatter, but I want them to believe that they do have an opportunity to change. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I can give you a very powerful exercise, a very simple exercise, but Mm -hmm. a very powerful exercise. I call it the flashlight of awareness. Your awareness, Paula, is like a flashlight. What does a flashlight do? A flashlight lights up whatever you shine it on, correct? Hmm. shine it on the wall it lights up the wall shine it on the floor it illuminates the floor shine it on the ceiling it illuminates the ceiling Mm -hmm. our awareness is like a flashlight and i'm going to prove it to you right now take your flashlight of awareness and shine it upon the chair in which you are sitting right now The moment you shine your flashlight of awareness on the chair in which you're sitting, you become aware of the pressure of your hips on the chair. You become aware of the fabric or the leather pressing against the back of your thighs. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. 
30 seconds ago, you were not aware of any of this, but now you're aware of it. Why? Because you've shown the flashlight of your awareness on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gave it direction. But, so as I mentioned, our awareness is like a flashlight. And where do we shine this flashlight on? We shine it on our problems, on the things that we think are wrong in our lives. Not the things that are wrong in our lives, but the things that we think are wrong in our lives. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've suffered a loss. This is so terrible. I'm going to be lonely. I'm going to have dinner alone. We had these. I'll never be happy again. And that you spend all your time shining your flashlight of your awareness on that. But at the same time, every one of us is incredibly privileged. Do you have to bother about whether you're going to have dinner tonight? Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have a bed to sleep in? Any one of these is a big deal in much of the world, correct? Mm -hmm. So when I talk like that, you say, yes, I'm incredibly privileged. But you don't feel incredibly privileged. You feel put upon and stressed out. And that is because of where you shine your flashlight of awareness off. You shine the flashlight of your awareness on the things which you think are wrong in your life. Change that around. Shine the flashlight of your awareness on the many things that are great in your life. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. keep it there. You will mm -hmm. find that gradually the feeling of appreciation and gratitude comes up. When you get up in the morning, don't go immediately to the place of Oh my God, there's so much to do and I don't have time to do it all. Shine the flashlight of your awareness on the many blessings that are part of your life. As you go through the day, keep bringing that feeling of gratitude up, wallow in it, marinate in it, bathe in it, shower in it. It is my hope that you, you and everybody on this call who hears this call will be in a situation where their default emotional domain is that of appreciation and gratitude. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, Paula, is very simple. When you're in the domain of appreciation and gratitude, you're not angry, you're not nervous, you're not anxious, you're not fearful. The two cannot coexist. And when you're in the domain of appreciation and gratitude, you are certainly never going to think of taking your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I, I remember when I, I listened to you talk about this and uh, there was an audience and you said, I'm sure that everybody here, most of you live in your heads and gratitude is not about, okay, I'm going to, we have this thing of journaling, right? Journal gratitude. So write it down. Okay, I'm just going to get this out of the way. Three things that I'm grateful for. Close, the, close your diary and go on with your life. No, it's not about, it's not in your head. You have to actually feel it. And as you say that, uh, it's like the other example that you had. When you shine the light and you start exercising, for example, altruism, but here's gratitude or appreciation, it becomes second nature, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and, that's how, and that's how your life is slowly starts to change. And you don't have to have a huge list, right? I had a, a, a client once that I talked to her. She was very much in this negative and seeing all the problems with the kids, with the husband, with the, I mean, everything was negative. And one of the things I asked her to do was every day I wanted to, to write 
two or three things, and believe me, you'll find it, things that you did that you were proud of and uh, that you're grateful that you did that day. It can be a meal for your family. It can be a two-minute exercise that you finally found the time to do, but two or three every day. So Paula, two or three, that's a lot. It's not, believe me, you'll find two or three things. And she came back one week later and she said, Paula, it changed everything. I just had no idea how many things, my list is way longer than two or three things. And she actually asked her kids to do the same. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. It's the flashlight, right? And once you start, the it becomes... flashlight of awareness. Pick where you shine it on. Mm -hmm. Last thing, Dr. Rao, I want to talk about, because I think this is another uh, one of those things that stay in your mind all the time. We don't realize, we don't have awareness that we do it. But most of these mental models, the mental chatter, our attitudes, how we relate to people, it has to do with our illusion of control. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to control our lives and look at what COVID did to us, right? Exactly. It actually exposed the reality and make it very mm -hmm. visible for all of us that there's no control, absolutely yes. none. And that's why so many of us were completely lost. So let's talk about that. Sure. In fact, in many ways, I think the COVID was a blessing, Paula, because it brought home to us very forcibly, we don't have control. When I talk about control and you make your effort, most people say, yeah, yeah, yeah I understand. I don't have control but you're talking at a very superficial level. Like, you know, my marriage is on the rocks. I don't know if it'll survive. I don't have control. My son wants to get into Harvard, but his grades are not that good. I don't know if he will succeed. I don't have control. But even as you're saying that, you're saying that from a reality, quote unquote, which you don't even question. Things like, if I run out of toilet paper, I'll go to the supermarket and pick up a roll. Hmm. If I'm hungry and there's no food in the house, I'll go to a restaurant, order my meals. And now because of the pandemic, even those things were called into question. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden we realize at a very visceral level that we really don't have any control at all. And many people find that frightening. And that's why we have the amount of mental anguish and the mental problems we have. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you recognize, hey, we never had control. We just thought we had control. That was an illusion. Now, the illusion of control is fantastic, Paula. That's what makes you get up in the morning. That's what makes you make mm -hmm. plans, execute on the plan. That's it has what, a function, right? It's a great function. But use the illusion of control, knowing that it is an illusion of control. Because in your life, as in everyone else's life, it will break down. Mm -hmm. And when it breaks down, if you use the illusion of control, knowing that it's the illusion of control, you say, ah, this is the time it broke down. What do I do? But if you use the illusion of control without knowing that it is an illusion, that's when you go to peace. That's why so many people are having issues with mental health right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So use the illusion of control. It's wonderful. But use it knowing that it is the illusion of control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is such a, such a powerful message for my listeners because 
when I think about, again, the grieving families, and especially parents, my heart, I mean, it breaks my heart when I listen to a parent talk about the loss of, of their kid. Because again, yeah, they had the illusion that they could control it, right? I mean, and I was responsible for that being. How could I have lost touch with my son or with my daughter and not know the extent of, of the risk of suicide? And so yes. it, it is the illusion that you have control because at the end of the day, nobody does, right? Every Especially day. over somebody else's life and their choices, right? And also people who are suicidal. Many times what brings it up is the idea that they lost control of their lives. You know, they're in financial situation that's hard. They lost their job. They lost, they lost a relationship. And now they feel, okay, there's, no, there's nothing else I can do, as if they really could do everything. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and even now with COVID, when, when I think about this situation, this debate now, because there's always a division. Now the division is vaccinated and non-vaccinated, right? Because mm -hmm. the moment I get vaccinated, again, again, I gain the control, right? But then there are these other people, the other side of, you know, of society, and they're taking the control out, out of me because I did my part. And now and they're you controlling did not do your part. Yeah, and they're they're controlling it, right? But you know what? That's what Dr. Rob just said. I'm sorry. There you don't. You just don't have control. Correct. Okay, to end, Dr. Rao, I want you to talk about this new mental model that I love. It's a story, but I'm sure you can summarize it. It's the good thing, bad thing, who knows? Let's talk about that. Because <laughs> that I think is, that's a life-changing concept. Oh, that is completely a life-changing concept. I have conducted so many workshops and I hear from people and companies that this has become our catchphrase. There are many companies in which people go around saying, you know, good thing, bad thing, who knows, Dr. Rao says that. It's based on a very simple concept, Paula. Whenever an event occurs, any event, it does not cause suffering, any event. Suffering only begins the moment you say, this is bad, this is terrible, I cannot bear it. Let's assume you get fired from your job. You now have a lot of spare time. But you get fired from your job and say, oh my God, what am I going to do? How do I make my mortgage payments? My kid's college tuition is due. This is terrible. And the moment you say this is terrible, at that instant, suffering begins. Suffering doesn't begin when you get fired. It begins when you decide, oh my God, this is bad. So I'm inviting you to think back on your life and can you recall any situation where something happened that at the time it happened, you thought this was terrible. But now you can look back upon it and say, that wasn't so terrible after all, or maybe even turned out to be really good. Mm -hmm. Well, I have, many, yeah, I, have many, I have many, many instances like that in my life, but even, I mean, even, even what happened to my father, right? And I'm not saying it was good. We can't ever see a suicide and look at it and say that was a good thing. But my dad died. It totally changed my life. Exactly. But here I am doing this work, right? So it, was it completely bad? Completely. That's exact. That's a beautiful point. In fact, I was going to use that, but I will refrain because I didn't know whether it would bring any uh, unpleasant memories to you. But I was thinking about that uh, even as I was saying that. 
So yes, you never say somebody's death was a good thing, but you can say, based on my present level of spiritual understanding, I cannot classify this as a good thing, but I can say, I'm going to wrap it up in cellophane and put it on a shelf and say that someday when I have greater spiritual depth and wisdom, perhaps I can understand the meaning of this. But in the meantime, I'm not going to say it's a good thing, but I am going to say I will not let my life be defined by this tragedy. Mm-hmm. And in your case, you grieved appropriately and then it changed the trajectory of your life. Mm-hmm. So if you can think of something that at some time you thought this is bad, but then it turned out to be not bad, or maybe it even turned out to be good, then is it possible that what you're today thinking of as bad, is it possible that in a few years it could turn out to be wonderful? Is it possible? Mm-hmm. Just asking yourself that question will move you to a different emotional domain. And then if you take the next step, what can I do to actually make it a good thing? And you move from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. Wow, that's beautiful. It's a very powerful exercise. Mm -hmm. And as you say, do not hurry to label things, right? Give it some time breathe, reflect on it. And as you just said, as you just mentioned, uh, yeah, make, make something out of it because you probably can, right? Exactly. Dr. Rao, thank you so much. I want to end by reading something you said that kind of puts all of this together. You said the journey is the only thing you have. That is correct. The universe is benevolent. It gives you what you need for your growth. Look for evidence that it is. And the more you look, the more you will find. Amen. Exactly correct, Paula. Thank you so much for your time and for being with us and sharing this hour with my listeners. My pleasure entirely, Paula. You have a terrific day, terrific evening. Have a terrific rest of your life. Thank you. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.